You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. And with me today is Justin Weinberg, the president and CEO of Alchemy X. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hey, Tony, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. We know you're super busy running a studio and a production company. So uh, we're so thankful that you would do this remotely for us, especially during this time with COVID-19. We're all inside looking for new content. So to be able to interview a content provider and creator is uh, is pretty awesome to get your input on on all of this that's going on right now. Happy to be here and happy to chat for sure. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so Justin, you started out your career as an attorney, a successful one at that, on top of that, starting at Cozen O'Connor, right? And you built out the media and entertainment practice there and eventually rose to partnership around the age of 31, uh, which is awesome. So tell us a little bit about that, how all of that happened, how the media practice, the entertainment practice was developed and how you got it off the ground. Sure. So as you pointed out, I am, I like to consider myself now in the um, attorney recovery program, <laughs> but I really, I had a, a great, really enjoyable legal career, which not too many people I know can say, but I, I did. I was a, my, my undergrad degree, I was actually an electrical engineer. And then, um, yeah, I I got my electrical engineering degree in undergrad. And then instead of going out into the real world, I needed a bit of a halfway house, if you will, um, and decided to go to law school. So and and what I saw in law school is that if you do reasonably well, uh, you will end up getting a job. Uh, I I clerked uh, during and after law school, first for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and then for the intermediate appellate court in Pennsylvania, and then uh, got a job as a um, as a litigator really as a professional liability defense litigator, defending engineers and architects for all sorts of exciting malpractice claims. (laughs) About a year into that, I was recruited to go over to Pozen, spent the vast majority and balance of my practicing legal career as a litigator, as a commercial litigator, and, and ultimately sort of over time, kind of transitioned into corporate law as a result of my entertainment practice. Uh, The history of the entertainment practice is sort of as one of my kind of base tenets in life of always sort of know who your friends are and, and maintain strong friendships. And um, while I was in law school, one of my best friends had moved out to Hollywood to uh, be a writer and found out pretty quickly that he was a, a lousy writer um, <laughs> and got into the management business with the idea that he would represent writers and develop content. And he had always had this idea of, of sort of, you know, projects being kind of developed about real life experiences and things that he had seen and participated in and done. And I, I became one of his lawyers very early on. And one of the first movies he was involved in was sort of this genesis was um, American Pie. Um, so he had achieved success pretty early on in his career and, and launched with a partner what became an extremely successful for almost 20 years, uh, independent production company in Hollywood. And they had produced really a, a string of kind of blockbuster successes. Mm-hmm. And one of the movies that they did was a remake of an Asian film, a movie called The Ring. And they ended up getting sued over some tortious interference and contractual issues. And, you know, he called me and 
And I ended up getting involved to represent them in this litigation. And after, and essentially this was in about 2001. Mm -hmm. So I was still at, at Cozen, of course, and I had my day job, if you will, of being a kind of regular commercial litigator handling all these other cases. But my friend had this monumental problem on his hands with this lawsuit. And I ended up actually going out to Los Angeles for the better part of three years to represent them in this litigation. And uh, it's, it was getting noticed. The case was getting noticed. It was getting some coverage. It was, you know, and, and just by being involved in this case, I was just there, kind of, as they say, in the room when it was all happening. Wow. And people, this, the problems he was having were not uncommon problems. So people started calling me in the industry, producer rights disputes was really kind of how it started. And, um, and I built a name for myself. The case ultimately goes to trial. So I ended up trying this case in Los Angeles Superior Court pretty early in my career. Um, I was maybe, five, I think it went to trial in 2003. And uh, we ended up getting a, 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 an extremely successful result that was totally unexpected. Um, and after a couple of weeks of trial, my, uh, I, I was able to get my friend's company dismissed from the lawsuit. And I think, as they say, you just have to do something once really, really well. And all of a sudden, you're the expert. <laughs> and as a result of that, this business, sort of this entertainment and media practice, took its foundation. Um, and I sat down and put together a business plan. And I went to Cozen, which was a, a really wonderful law firm with a, a sort of broad-based practice across lots of industries and disciplines. And I recognized that the practice of entertainment law isn't necessarily a specific body of law. I mean, it can be, of course, but it's rather a body of clients who have a whole variety of legal needs. And I said, Cozen's a perfect firm. They don't represent traditionally these people in, in the media and entertainment or advertising industries, but we have all the disciplines at this firm, whether it's criminal, tax, right? Intellectual property, corporate, transactional, banking, finance. I mean, go on at litigation. Mm -hmm. So the firm was extremely supportive very early in my career for me to go out and offer our services to this body of clients. Concurrently, of course, there are really specific concepts and principles applicable to the entertainment industry. And I took it upon myself during those you know, early 2000s years to, to, to learn and educate and become an expert in those matters as best as I could, and to always become a student, which I am to this day of, of learning, you know, the business of the business, the entertainment business. So um, through that, I, I spent a lot of time learning and studying and reading and writing and have now written, I, I, I don't know, I guess, countless articles and chapters of, of treatises on, on entertainment law and, and, by becoming a student, I, I taught myself, and over time, you know, eventually the student becomes the teacher. Right. And after uh, 19 years, that was kind of the genesis of developing that entertainment practice. And while I started out representing really my friend as one single client, as a movie producer, that became two movie producers and six movie producers. And then they got television deals. So it became television producers. And then the business started changing. If you think about over the last 20 years, right? Talk, think about the proliferation of kind of unscripted content. So when I, if we go back to the movie business, I started representing a lot of documentary filmmakers and was representing them at the Cannes Film Festival with the sale of films. So now my practice is moving 
from litigation into sort of doing deals. So I was going to Cannes, I was going to Sundance, representing film producers there in either raising funds, debt or equity for their films, or selling projects, pre-sales of projects, completed sales projects. This past year was my uh, 16th year at Sundance in a row. So uh, the, pr- the practice and my my discipline specifically started morphing to working around independent, uh, independent sort of documentary films at these film festivals. Then, as you think about the early 2000s, the explosion of unscripted television, what we all call reality TV, right? Reality TV is just really a short form of a longer documentary film. Kind of the same principles, the same concepts. And as a lawyer, incredible sort of fodder for a robust legal practice because there are lots and lots of associated legal issues. Right. So that was kind of how that the business started now gathering some momentum. And, and the firm was extremely supportive and, and the firm was growing and was growing pretty significantly from when I started. The firm had maybe 300 lawyers. When I left, there were over 700. So it was growing lots and lots of transactional corporate lawyers and litigators as well that had practices that were, if not directly in the media and entertainment business, they were tangentially related or certainly supportive of growing the media and entertainment practice. And and with a pretty large footprint, you know, there were twenty, I, I don't recall, maybe twenty four offices throughout the world. So I was able to use this global footprint as well to grow the practice. And then, of course, you think about the proliferation of various formats. Right, people weren't sitting anymore. There was no more appointment television. Right, people weren't sitting on their sofas anymore. Everything now shifted to on demand viewing, portable viewing, just like they're doing now on portable devices, remote viewing, on demand, um, pay per view subscription. I can go, you know, on and on. OTT, the streamers, which is really where we are now. And as a lawyer, that created a, an entirely different business model. So as my career was moving on, it was really becoming extremely kind of broad-based in representing creators, distributors, kind of all sides of the deals in these industries. That's awesome. And just listening to that evolution of your career, such a cool experience that you go from just being an attorney, and I I don't mean to say just being an attorney, that's a prestigious career, as we both know, obviously, Uh, both being uh, lawyers, maybe, maybe I'm in the reform program now, (laughs) you're already on the tail end. But really cool that you got to experience all of those unique changes, which I think adds a lot of flavor, right, to your career and keeps you interested. And I hear it in your voice when you started with the discussion about being a corporate litigator. There's almost a little bit of a, uh, you know, but then you're talking about going to the film festivals, being involved in all of these projects. And interesting thing, I think, as well, is that you're involved at the documentary level, which is a tough side of the entertainment industry. Documentaries, quite frankly, don't have that ticket sale volume on the distribution end, right? So how did you deal with those issues learning to deal make on the fly or were you doing research on negotiating tactics and stuff before you got involved in those deals or or was it just learn as you go kind of i think it's a combination of all of those things one of the things that i i really looked at very early on was you know identifying those people that i could learn from right if i could work for anybody in the various disciplines 
things, right? Who was the deal maker out there for documentary films? Who was the deal maker for reality television? Who was the most, you know, who were the leading, brightest minds in the business? And I did everything I could to get close to them. So whether it was initially attending conferences when they were speaking to ultimately asking to speak at the conferences where they were speaking. And I, I basically just through sort of like osmosis, I was like, let me get in the room with these people. I want to learn from these people. I want to see what they're doing. I want to study the deals that they've done, right? And understand, you know, even the evolution, because again, it's a constantly changing business. So it was to some extent learning mm -hmm. what all of these people had done, but then understanding the metamorphosis and evolution of these deals as sort of the practical economic realities were changing, as distribution outlets were changing, as formats were changing. And what does that mean? Something as simple as, you know, understanding the impact on a budget of, of distributing content on a big movie screen versus on a small iPhone trickles all the way down to kind of the audio mixing level, to the color correction level. Right. So, you know, when they do a color grade, it's very different. Well, that has an impact right. financially on a budget. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And that's just but one example. So it was a lot of that. Um, it was a lot of question asking as well. It, and I, I have no shame in being in mm -hmm. a deal. Um, and I would frequently be in, involved in something and say to someone, you know, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do here. Um, and I appreciate your point. Can you explain it to me? Tell me what you're trying to go for. And that's, not offensive and that's not a sign of weakness that's actually challenging someone to their point right but at the same time kind of learning what they're thinking and what they're doing that's brilliant i i was hearing that right from the get-go from what you were talking about in your history you clearly have a growth mindset and you're not concerned with the looking smart be too critical of many lawyers out there but that might be a little bit of a problem in our in our industry Sometimes I, I think that lawyers have the expectation that they're supposed to be the expert in the room. So for fear of looking, I want to say incompetent, that's the wrong word, but for fear of looking maybe underprepared or, or uh, lacking in knowledge, they won't ask those questions and seek out learning opportunities. And you were doing that very, even at a midpoint in your legal career to some degree, from what you were saying, you were, you were a student from day one and focused on learning as much as you could about every element today. of the deal. And I, I don't think there's anyone out there that would say, I don't know what I'm doing. And I think you can turn it into a position of strength where when you're questioning and challenging, you're, you're almost testing someone else to make sure that they know what they're talking about. You could readily sort of argue, right. argue exactly. the other side of this. And, and I also think that, you know, as we talk about sort of guiding tenets, Right. One of, I think there's kind of these, I've lived my life with sort of this notion that there are seven really powerful words and, um, and three of them, I mean, there's seven in total, but three of them really are, um, I need help. And if you go to someone That's great. and just say, I need help, right? It's very powerful and very responsive and, and response inducing, if you will, right? that very few people truly, truly heartless, right? That if you say, I need help, people, to right. your point, they want to show what they know. They want to show they can help, right? And, and they'll help. And, um, and, and, and I use those words and I'm not ashamed to ask for help because I think it's important.
What are sure. the other four, um, if you don't mind me asking? I guess it was eight words, right? It, it's sure. really eight words. but uh, And you have to mean them, which is important, but, but extremely powerful. Uh, I love you, and I'm sorry. That's great. That's that's brilliant. That that combination of phrasing, those three phrases, you're right, can be hugely impactful in probably 99% of the interactions you have with human beings in general. Right. But if you think of them in, in sort of the, the context of, of, I love you, I'm sorry, I need help. Really, eight words. That's great. Yeah. Very, very, very impactful. Even just for me, hearing that was huge. So thank you for that message general for our listening audience. So, sure. okay, let's fast forward a little bit now. You you developed this legal practice in the entertainment space and Alchemy X becomes one of your clients yes. in that process, right? So then they're struggling a little bit with their business model. They start to, I'm saying they, you're now a part of them. It, it was they, they were struggling. We are still struggling, but they were struggling. And yeah. now we all are struggling. <laughs> they're struggling a little bit with their business model. <laughs> so walk us through that. So Alchemy X is a client. They're struggling a little bit. How do they approach um, you to come so, in and join the organization? So the company had become a client of mine in its prior form mm -hmm. back in 2004 when, they, when the company was developing um, some reality television content. And I had helped and worked with the company. I was really their first outside general counsel. Any other client I had, and I was working with the company pretty regularly through the balance of the 2000s. And then I think the industry, the advertising and media industry as a whole, and it's not I think, I mean, we know this, that kind of in 2012 sort of hit a pretty massive speed bump. This company in its prior form was still doing okay, but and was investing in a variety of different endeavors. And with coupled with that speed bump, I think by 2013, the company was really underperforming. And it underperformed in 2013, 2014, 2015. And the original founders of the company, the company was founded in 1981, which is in the media and entertainment business, we're talking 40 years now, just about, which is absolutely incredible to sustain right. that long. I think the company was extremely shrewd in what it had done by trying to diversify across a number of different platforms. And by 2015, unfortunately, while revenues were sort of growing, they weren't growing at a kind of fast enough rate to support the salaries. And it had an out, the company had a really out of control cost structure. So the, the salaries were, were out of control and the overhead was out of control. So there were a lot of problems in the company and the former president's contract was up. And I think that well, that, that there an agreement was not reached, and the ownership of the company at that time made a decision to move in a different direction. And they approached me and asked if I would be interested, and uh, and that was sort of a life inflection point for me. They asked if I'd be interested in coming in as president and CEO of the company, and th that was one of those sort of life inflection points of recognizing the challenges and the problems in the business. Um, recognizing that at this point I had a pretty incredible career going and I was happy and I, I enjoyed my law practice and my law partners. And, and I think in the world of, of sort of lawyers, you know, I, I had the best that I could possibly have. And it was one of those moments where you sort of look at yourself and say, we know what the rest of our life will look like, right? For the most part, I could keep doing this for sure. 
but how often, right, do I get the opportunity to really test myself with not much of a safety net to make a difference on a problem that's a real problem, right? I mean, the, the company had real, significant, systemic problems, and to try and fix it. Um, and to really be engrossed in fixing it and pour my heart and soul into a new challenge. Now, for a second, let's back up also to some of the psychology there was at the time I was 42 years old. So I had been practicing law at that time, 18 years, 19 years, just about, right? So I've been practicing law 19 years. I guess I was 43. I've been practicing law 19 years, uh, 16 of which at the same place. So if you do that math, almost half of my life, I was practicing law. And about a third of my life, um, I was at the same place. So yeah, I was happy, right? We're only getting one chance here. And this is only one path. And, and I knew that, yes, it was a significant risk. But even today, I could still go back to that law. Right? I could still rebuild what I perhaps walked away from. But that firm is going to go on. It's an incredible law. Firm. Right. It's going to go on forever and ever. It's not going to rise or fall or live or die based on me. I mean, I'm completely insignificant in that world, right? I can only do my part to be the cog in the wheel. <laughs> so this was an opportunity to truly become the president and chief executive of a real life going concern. Unfortunately, with the problems it had, it was essentially at the time a 34-year-old startup. Yeah, right. It, it had never gotten out of that cycle is what you're saying, basically, right? With all of the overhead issues and the high salaries, it was still kind of living that startup mode where it's basically uh, very much fight or flight kind of thing, right? It's got to it's gotta. I think the problems have been sort of. lasting for a number of years. And, and I don't want to say that the problem was high salaries because that's, that sort of sounds, you know, not correct because these were exceedingly talented people right, right. who commanded those salaries. So it was very much of a raise the bridge or lower the water kind of problem, right? So people absolutely deserve these high salaries <laughs> right. and, and were exceedingly talented. Um, that was kind of but one problem, you know, that needed solving. So there were a whole host of problems that I saw, um, morale was really the biggest one, right? It's all these things put together. And, and so I, I thought, you know, with the lawyer background, the skill set is not tremendously different. And there's one skill that no lawyer in the history of the world has ever exercised that I need in my current position to exercise. Um, but there's one thing, no lawyer ever. It doesn't matter who the lawyer is. They've never, ever, ever had to make the ultimate decision. It's always the client's decision. And this was a role that would require me to make decisions, right or wrong. I had to make decisions. Lawyers don't do that. They give the options to the client. They give the recommendations to the client. Every other skill set, spotting the issues, analysis of the issues, working through the issues, researching the issues. That's all the lawyers work. And in this role now, it's one step further because I have to make a decision. And it's far worse, as I learned, to not make a decision at all than making the wrong decision. 
Right. Good point. Do you think that your technical background as an engineer in at least academically, you never practiced as an engineer, right? I did not. Right into law school. Right. So, but nonetheless, from an academic perspective, you're sort of trained with this technical ability, right? You were an electrical engineer? I was. You said? I, I did a couple of um, like internship jobs. So I did sort of work in a paid capacity in the field um, for maybe right. you know, 10 months or something like that. But not anything significant, but I mean, the engineering mind, not dissimilar to the legal mind, is just analytical. You think that that sort of helped you be successful, though, in this space, in the entertainment space? Because there, the entertainment space, quite frankly, almost every project and every deal, I would imagine, you know more no, than I, I do. I'm, I'm asking, not telling, of course. But uh, but in the entertainment space, I would imagine that every deal requires very, very creative solutions to see the deal through and and not only to see the deal through, but then ultimately to get the production off the ground in pre-production to begin with. Then the production itself has a whole new set of problems. It's almost like Russian nesting dolls, sure. right? You solve one and you just got a whole other set to go after. So do you think that that's in some way part of the reason that you had a leg up with all of these skills kind of matriculating to this, to this I, point? I, I, I don't think that that in and of itself is dispositive um, by any means. I think, of course, it's helpful, but truly what I think, and, and this is, I teach as well, not so much anymore, but when mm -hmm. I sort of yeah. guide people, I always suggest to them to figure out what makes them unique, right? My, my most important sort of, when I was looking for opportunities, I would always want to show someone or explain how I could become or how I was uniquely qualified to be an asset to an organization, right? So the fact that I had that engineering background was a unique qualification. Layer on top, the legal background is a unique qualification. Layer on top that you write a book is a unique qualification that you did. You know, this volunteer work is a unique qualification. Whatever it is, it's those, you know, skills and assets that uniquely qualify you to help the, the, either the organization, the business, the person achieve their end goal, right? Because let's face it, as a lawyer, right? I, I mean, pe people look at lawyers as like the as a cost center, right? A necessary evil cost center, right? And even in my role here at at the company as the president and CEO, while I do generate business and revenue for the company, it's not the massive part of things. So the vast majority of what I do and my services here is really a cost. To the business. So the idea is turning that cost into a right. profit center. So how do I channel my unique skills into helping the people who are driving the revenue, helping clients come in? If I were a lawyer, helping my clients achieve their end goals. You could, I mean, you can ride a bike without a helmet. The helmet's a cost center, right? A helmet's a cost. You could ride a bike without a helmet and you, you'll probably be okay, right? You should be okay. <laughs> But right, exactly. <laughs> if you run into a problem and you don't have the helmet, right? The cost there is pretty profound against the benefit, if you will, of having worn it. Exactly. Sure. And you need to 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 amplify that benefit by adding value to the deal and to the process, or in this context of Alchemy X to to being an asset for the company to get them yeah, off the ground. It's sort of make helping putting myself in the mindset and 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 actually being true to the words that that the company or if I were a lawyer 
would be worse off if it didn't have me. I mean, sure, I guess there's, you know, even as a lawyer, you see this, right? There's always a lawyer that's cheaper. Exactly. Exactly. Should be okay. Right. But there's, there's some reason that things cost more and it's just deciding, you know, what's your value proposition that you're offering for those increased costs, right? You can buy parachutes cheap or you can buy parachutes expensive. I'm sure they'll both work. I hope. Right. Um, but I don't want to be the person tested out if the, the parachute that's 50% off is going to work. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Cool. So you come into Alchemy X and now kind of just, you know, walk us through what, what the things you talked about morale and how those elements were, were a part of getting that, getting Alchemy X out of the brink, so to speak. So what would be your three best practices, let's say, for those who are listening and struggling with their organization? And right now there's a lot of financial uncertainty and a lot of uncertainty about the future in general. So what would your three best practices be for bringing an organization back from the brink, get sure. riding the ship, so, so to speak? Obviously, first and foremost, the most important thing for me was understanding the business itself. How does this business, just at a fundamental level, generate revenue? Not make a profit, but just how does it generate revenue? What's the value proposition? Why does someone hire this company? Why does a client engage the services of this company? Right? That's kind of the first principle of what you need to understand. I think derivative of that is the people, right? And this is a creative business. So understanding and truly valuing the people who are required for that to occur, right? Without the people, this company is worthless. It's nothing. So it's truly understanding and valuing the people and, and, and making sure the teams uh, know that they're valued and how important they are, right? It's not any one individual. The company's not going to rise or fall based on any one individual, but it's each of those individuals in the aggregate that truly drive the value of the of the company. Right. So I think that was the most important piece of who are the people, how are they valued, are they valued properly, and do they know they're valued properly? I think was the first piece, you know, and how that relates to generating revenue. Then it was understanding how the company makes a profit. Right. What's the cost? Of that. So we, you know, the company has clients and the company is generating revenue. Well, is it just doing that to lose money? Does it cost more than you're bringing in? So that's a whole uh, understanding again of, of quote unquote, the making of the sausage, if you will, <laughs> right? What has to happen to properly make, you know, the product that the company is selling? And that includes not just people, right? It goes to leadership of those people, management of those people, the technology that's required to create content. Um, is the technology outdated? Does the technology need updating? Are the projects being properly managed? Are the finances being properly managed? So it's basically starting with you get a client in the door with a project for X dollars, and then what does it take to deliver that back to the client? With the goal, of course, that you should be making a certain amount of money, right? I mean, there. I, I guess there are lots of clients. A certain percentage or a certain margin that needs to be made to keep, to push into the block. Sure. 
but it's understanding what that is. So I'm not even talking about whatever that certain percentage or certain margin is, because you first need to understand kind of everything that's baked into this. Because the last piece now is once you now have a finished product, the company has ongoing requirements just to exist as a being, right? Many people can call, you can call that overhead, right? And there's lots and lots of things that go into overhead from rent, right? Do you need space? So what does the physical space look like? Insurances, benefits, administrative staff. I could go on and on. Travel, entertainment, coffee, right? Um, So it's understanding all of those things that are the, um, some of them are requirements and some of them are, you know, luxuries, right? right? Do you get, how good of a coffee do you get, right? So it's making those decisions uh, of overhead, because again, you know, we, we all like to live a certain type of lifestyle, certain things you have to do, other things you want to do. And it's figuring out those wants and needs that would, again, flow back up to the people, right? What, what's required? What do we want to provide? What's, and because all of that then gets baked together into morale. And then once you figure all that out, you then can understand the type of business that you're going to run. So those are the, the three sort of guiding principles. Exactly. No, that was great. Very insightful. And I, I think the interesting thing is that you were at both times sort of looking at the forest and also focusing on the trees. And there was no tree in your in your talk there that was too insignificant. I mean, you're even talking about those kinds of things like, well, I got to keep my people happy. Well, part of that is making sure, for instance, that we have feed that they at least enjoy, right? And how much can we can we put forth? To and, it's a, and it's an example, but but yes, the concept rings true. Yeah, no, but a good one. Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, so now shifting towards you, you're finally starting to get Alchemy X back onto this great track. And Alchemy X was largely focused on reality slash unscripted TV, correct? Yeah, no that that was only that division's probably only about ten percent of the company. Oh wow! Okay, okay. But you, you yourself are, are generally speaking, you're you're an expert, obviously, in entertainment law to begin with. You've taught the course, like you said, at at Drexel, right at Westfall, at Drexel, and at the law school. So at the at yep at the uh, Klein School of Law, as well as at Temple University. Right, right. And you uh, have also written chapters. I, I've read a good bit of your chapter on reality TV and the essentials of entertainment law deal making. Riveting. Um, <laughs> riveting. Well, for most, for most people, maybe not, but for me, actually it was. <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, I'm curious, how do you ensure, and this is more getting into the business of entertainment. So not focused on the legal aspects per se, but you, you make a lot of really insightful points in your chapter on reality TV, at least to me. And, so how do you ensure that people or businesses upon which shows are being based are aligned and committed to the production? Because let's face it, at least historically, right? Reality TV is largely driven by the entertainment value. And part of that entertainment value might be a little bit of uh, drama, for lack of a better term. And so a lot of these people can be, um, how should I put this? Full of energy. <laughs> and Personality very, driven. Very dynamics. So when you're managing those types of individuals and your production depends on it, how are you ensuring that that they're committed and that they're aligned to the success of the show? Sure. So fortunately here at Alchemy X, we have uh, 
some incredible executive producers and I let them manage them and I get to happily bury my head in the sand. But but all kidding aside, you know, to your point, talent <laughs> is and can be extremely colorful for sure. But it's precisely that color that makes for engaging content. So you, you don't ever want to break, break the spirit, right? Uh, or the essence of what, of what exactly. makes that content so special. So it's truly, again, a, a leadership piece of leading with compassion and understanding. And, and frequently when there's an impasse, if you will, it's just because people feel that they're not being heard. And we're really lucky at this company as well that I, I take a, a pretty active role in, in working closely, very closely with the uh, executive producers of our shows um, who are the most incredible you know, executive producers out there with you know, 20 plus longstanding careers um, working at networks. So the head of art division here is a, is a great guy named Andy Singer, who um, ran, he was in the, he ran HGTV, Food Network, and it was a travel channel and has this incredible um, pedigree of, of greenlighting shows very early on. Andrew Zimmern's show, Anthony Bourdain's show. I mean, he was in the room making the decisions and those are some pretty, you know, and, and obviously uh, Anthony Bourdain's past, but, um, you know, having wow, sort of that ability here, and, and he's someone new, and Andy's new to the company, Andy Singer. And by new, I mean he started, and I, I brought him in here uh, two months after I started. So he's now been here. He's not new anymore. He's uh, considered uh, uh, one of my legacy folks, right, having been here since uh, the beginning of uh, the middle of 2016. And Andy uh, ran into the burning dumpster fire with me and, and helped to fix wow. that department. But to get back to your question, it's, um, you know, it's really leading with compassion and, and understanding and having the knowledge that by design and really by its nature kind of commands the respect, right? When we have to make, and this goes sort of across the company, right? There's no pleasure in making sort of uncomfortable or difficult decisions, it's, it, nothing's ever done based on ego or power. It, it's quite to the contrary. When I make a decision, right, I, I have a heart and soul. I know when things are humble or unfavorable, but they're being done with the best intentions for the company as a whole. And, and that's sort of the guiding principle with the production of reality television, where you know by design, right, and by its very nature, you're going to be dealing with... Um, with really passionate personalities. Right. No, that's brilliant. I, I think just Paul, well, your 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 whole message is is revolving around that compassionate approach. And there are some definite great lessons in there for anyone who's listening to take back to their own business to apply. Sure. Because a lot of times even clients, right, in any business setting can have their own personalities and perspectives and be very dynamic, but you need them, right? So so having that compassionate and focusing on their side of the discussion, for lack of a better term. Absolutely bring everything to to a mutual point of success is is a great message that's that's very astute thank you so how do you know we talked a little bit about um andy yes andy's 
success in greenlighting shows early on. What is the sort of litmus test that you apply to know if a show or production is likely to be successful? Obviously, you never know that it's going to be successful until people criticize by either tuning in or not tuning in, right? So how do you, what tests do you use at Alchemy X sort of to figure out whether or not something's going to be successful? I have no idea. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) My crystal ball was completely broken. And then uh, my crystal ball now got coronavirus. So I, I just, I have no idea because, and, and all kidding aside, you know, there are shows and there's content, you know, we have a show on the air right now that aired last year as a, as a special and the ratings weren't as strong as we would have expected the ratings to be. And we couldn't figure out why it was, we thought it was some of the best content we'd ever seen, like truly, truly incredible content. And the ratings didn't bear it. And we couldn't understand why. And there were all sorts of ideas. And it sort of just boiled down to the show just needs to find its audience. That's it, right? The internet was blowing up with people talking about it. Um, it was you know, people wanting, we need more and more and more. But it just didn't make sense. So ultimately, the network ended up um, greenlighting additional series of episodes, which have mm-hmm. we, we started airing. And the episodes have been slowly actually on on a proper trajectory, not even so slowly, the show is finding its audience, but it's just taking time. Who knows? Who knows why it took that time? You know, who knows why it wasn't an instant success? You know, and so it it really is extremely challenging to sort of pick that. One of the things that we're really blessed with here at Alchemy X is we have an incredible, led by Andy, an incredible development team. So there's a whole host of creatives, not just in, in the original content, and programming department, but we have a company filled with creatives. And the one thing that that means is that we're really able to sort of know what's been done before. We're able to see what's happening in the marketplace. We have exceptional intelligence that we can get from agents, you know, our agent, so that we, and, and great relationships with the networks, so that we know kind of putting all of that together what are people looking for? What are the networks looking for? What are the buying habits? What are the trends? And, and we have a really great pipeline to not only develop internally, but to have content that's brought to us for further development. So we're really lucky here, again, with our people, some of the smartest, uh, most creative and hardworking folks to sort of do the best we can. And we know that sometimes, you know, obviously, we'll miss something. That'll be the overnight success. Sometimes we'll catch something that's a slow burn success, but all in all, it's really, you know, it's, it's such a milkshake of things that goes into the blender for something to be successful. Right. That's, that's brilliant and very astute. I think, I think you still hit on, on some of your success factors there a little bit talking about how you're looking at what's been done before, what's been successful, relying on industry professionals to give you some feedback and information. So again, I think there's, there's a lot of really good lessons there, um, out of that. So how do you keep yourself and a production or Alchemy X? I, when I say yourself, I mean Alchemy X in general under Control when day-to-day changes occur. And, and obviously, we're in COVID-19. So maybe if you want to pepper in a little bit of how you're, you're maintaining your success, which I think you're doing an awesome job just speaking as a, a spectator, so to speak. How have you been dealing with the constant day-to-day uncertainty and change of COVID-19 running a production company at the same time? Um, a lot of coffee and a lot of antacids. <laughs> um. <laughs> 
Um, so, so this is uh, a particularly challenging time. I think that we very early on here at Alchemy X, we mobilized very early to, to build completely secure remote workflows. So this entire company in an industry that really at its core is based on creative collaboration, put together a workflow process so that that can continue in isolation. And we've done a lot of things, not just on the technology side. It's not as easy as we just circulate Zoom links and things get created here at this <laughs> company. I mean, we had right. to build true remote workflows. Uh, secure workflows as well, because obviously content security is absolutely critical. So, you know, just on a technical level, we had an engineering team that in, I think it was in 66 hours, deployed um, almost 100 artists to all work remotely as if they were still sitting in the office. Wow. And we can walk through this studio or our New York studio and every machine is still on. It looks like everyone's working and just out to lunch. <laughs> Every machine is still operating. So that wow. was really important. And then for me as a leader, um, I've done a number of things as best as I can to remain, you know, to remain leading at a time when it's really hard to do so. And, and that includes really, I, I over-communicate now. During a, a company that had to go through change, right? If we go back to when I started here, change is anxiety producing, no matter what. Moving is a perfect example. People just don't like to move. Right, any change is anxiety producing. We now have such profound change in our everyday life that the just the amount of stress and anxiety you turn on the TV and it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. And you would have to be sort of heartless and brainless to not feel some level of stress and anxiety. Exactly. So, all I so what am I doing? I'm over communicating with my with the leaders of the company. So that because they're in constant contact. And then I have been giving weekly video just like this, State of the Union kind of addresses town halls on a weekly basis to the entire company. And we all join live. It's not pre-recorded. And I sit and I talk just for about 15 or 20 minutes. And I update everyone on what I'm seeing, what I am doing for the company, where the company stands in light of the pandemic and what that means. And then I go through each department and talk about what's happening in each department. And my hope and goal is that by continuing to do this now weekly during this pandemic, it brings a sense of calm and a sense of security and a sense of safety that this company, which starts with me, actually cares about the people who are here, who are still doing an incredible job their professional endeavors at a time when they're working in a new environment, right? With sort of curious pets on their shoulders and maybe a crying baby in the background. And it's hard to challenge, it's hard to communicate. Um, but just because I'm doing it now weekly, you know, these are things that I used to do uh, maybe twice a year during, I'll call it quotes, normal times. Um, so now it just is coming down to over communication and transparency. People feel that they have information. They can then either form their own conclusions or they can ask more questions to get more information. But either way, we get to the result of a place of peace and calm. And, and that's, you know, to answer your point, in a business that is by definition can be at times tumultuous, it's now has a, a tsunami of, of tumult going on. Um, and all I can do is show that 
by, you know, it's leading kind of by example and maintaining calm and letting people know that, yeah, while we're physically not in our office, the office is still here. We're still doing what we've been doing. We're just not physically together. Right. Yeah. And uh, first of all, any plans to run for political office? Because we could use somebody like you right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know the answer to that's probably no. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no, I think, uh, again, there's that underlying layer of being compassionate of your of your team that focus on that. And I'm hearing also the the little victories, right? When there's a crisis, just focusing on doing weekly sort of transparent state of the unions to let them know, hey, guys, we're still maintaining these successes, you know, keep keep rowing in the same direction. We're doing a great job. Just stay focused. Just win the day. Uh, It's awesome. That's it. Just win the day one day at a time. Win the day. So you. You, you frequently work with people who are very sophisticated, especially creatively, but they're all sort of coming from these different points of view and different backgrounds, whether it's creatives, business people, investors, production people, agents, people who are, are producing a project. So how do you reshape your message to ensure you're communicating effectively with each of them, especially during these uncertain times, like you said, you're having these state of the unions. So how, how do you ensure that your messaging is approaching each person and making them feel like so it's important heard? for me? And, and that's a really great question, because I'm frequently talking to each of those groups separately, but I am often and sometimes talking to them all together. So for me, it's always understanding kind of the audience. Like who do I have to communicate with? And more importantly, what do they have to say to me? So for me, it's always trying to anticipate the needs of who I'm talking to, of understanding who I'm talking to, of, um, of asking a lot of questions, of not making anyone feel marginalized or not critical to the conversation. So not talking down to anyone. And I, I sort of view almost going back to my lawyer days, right? I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a servant, right? I'm here working for everyone else, not vice versa. So it's always reshaping the message from a place of what can I do to help you? Tell me what I can do. I don't have all the answers, right? I'm trying to lead during a really difficult time right now specifically, but leadership is always sort of a difficult exercise. And the leader's always going to have an imperfect answer. And I know that. I will never have the right answer. So it's really trying to understand what is the goal or the objective of the people I'm working with. And then you can start to reframe. And, and quite frequently, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It may be, okay, this particular group, I clearly need to talk to you separately. This particular group, we should probably have a sidebar. You know, you, why don't you call me one-on-one? Because it's always a unique set. Right of problems or circumstances that have to be solved. And it's that uh, humble approach that I think probably makes you a fantastic leader. I don't don't know anyone from your team, but as an observant on the outside, I I think you're doing a fantastic job. Thank you. Uh, So congrats. I I really do admire what what you've done in this really tough time for the entertainment industry in general. But yeah, it's your focus also to the other person's perspective, right? That's clear in your messaging that you're listening. First of all, humans are just naturally sort of egotistical. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that's just sort of innate in our biology to some degree. So when you focus on the other person, I think they feel heard more, right? Because you're, you're, you're saying, 
saying very clearly, what can I do to help you be successful? You're just showing right from the get-go that you're you're focused on their outcomes and and their ability to to rise to their yep. best self, so to speak. For sure. Cool. So what would you say is your biggest failure, or or it doesn't have to be a failure necessarily? What was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome in your production career? Obviously, you were very successful as an attorney. You transitioned that into some really cool opportunities throughout your career. So very admirable from that perspective. But what do you think your biggest challenge to overcome thus far in your production career has um, been? What I'm about to say, I think we'll all come together. But you frequently hear people say, like, fake it until you make it. Right? We've all heard that. And right. it does not work. It just doesn't. There have been perhaps moments here and there where I haven't been perhaps totally um, knowledgeable. And, and again, this is contrary to what we talked about you know, a few minutes ago, but the whole concept of thinking you can fake it until you make it does not work. That's really just a sort of a euphemism for being lazy. And, um, and, and even letting those thoughts, because this is an exhausting marathon, right? It's not a race. It's just an exhausting marathon and sort of thinking even just letting it creep into your brain that you can fake it until you make it or that um, this too shall pass, you know, this sort of the same thing, like just, just sort of fake it. It'll, it'll work itself out. It'll go away. (laughs) Understanding the critical issues is important and not really truly being completely prepared is a problem. And that takes discipline, takes a lot of discipline. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges is maintaining discipline when there are so many people uh, relying upon me doing my job for their livelihood and for them to reach their hopes and dreams. And and I think ever looking towards a shortcut right, is really a mistake. And, um, and I've been lucky, and I don't know if it's lucky, I think it's diligent in staying steadfast to that, you know, that, that discharge of my responsibility. Awesome. So last question, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into the production space? You actually mentioned this in your chapter on reality TV in, uh, in the essential guide to entertainment law dealmaking about how, you know, obviously if you're in the industry and you've built your contacts and, and you've sort of come up in the film and the media and entertainment industry, you have the contacts so you can probably get a project off the ground if you wanted to, right? But for someone who's starting out as an independent producer, as an independent creative, What's your advice to them to help them get onto the right path into a production so, career? You just mentioned that I could probably get a project off the ground. I, I could maybe get a project off the ground. I, I, it's not probable. It's no more probable than anybody else. And the reason is this, to kind of answer your question. At the end of the day, it's, the, it's a content business. It doesn't matter how smart you might be, how skilled someone may be, how, what sort of contacts someone may have. At the end of the day, it's just content. And coming up with a good piece of unique, engaging content is how a project gets off the ground. So my piece of advice is that people should open their eyes, right? Observe and learn and study and see and, and really take in the stories, right? Unscripted television, reality TV is to some extent just life that someone happened to observe and say, hey, this should be put on camera and caught and put on television. 
It doesn't have to be sort of you see this person walking down the street and it should be a show about them because those shows are really rare. Finding the Kardashians or the Jersey Shore cast is is finding a needle in a haystack. But it's it's the story right. that we see, sort of just life in general. So for someone who wants to get into the business, I mean, I, I applaud someone for wanting to get into the business. We all want to get into the business, but it's it's sort of having that perception of what would create that piece of engaging content. And I think that's, again, great advice in general for anyone. A creative and an entrepreneur are very, very similar, right? They're taking an idea that's just an idea and trying to materialize it into this thing that people will want to buy. So um, yeah, I appreciate the advice. Justin, thank you so much for your time. If people want to reach out to Alchemy X or get involved in a project with you guys, what's the best way to reach out? Um, We're obviously on Twitter. We are on Uh, Facebook, and we can be reached through our website at www.alchemy-x.com. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Really appreciate your time. Have a great day. Stay safe and healthy, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Tony. You as well. Take care. Thanks again for having me. Have a good one.